0: Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky.
1: And our scripture this morning comes from 2 Corinthians 7, 5 through 11. So if you're able, would you please join me? in standing for the reading of God's word. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorrow, sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you.
0: Hey, good morning, friends. Good to see you. Uh, As many of you know, uh, five weeks ago, I stood behind this pulpit and preached from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and then just a few days later, we found out that my wife had a large brain tumor, and it's been quite a journey since then, and I just wanted to, as we begin today, just thank you so much uh, for your love and support. I do not know how we would have made it through these very dark days, and just ask you to continue to pray. Uh, We have a long road of uh, recovery ahead of us, and we're praying for God to really show up and, and restore her to health. So I really appreciate that. Um, but before we open God's word and see what he has to say to us today, let me just pray uh, for us once more. Thank you, our Heavenly Father, that even though we are dust and will return to dust, that you love us and that we are fearfully and wonderfully made that you have breathed life into all of your creatures. And then those of us who know you, you have breathed the power of your own spirit residing in us and opening our eyes and changing us and teaching us and shaping us and forming us. And so I pray that you would do another layer, another deepening work by the power of the spirit in us today. And we pray these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So to begin today, I would like to ask you to do something a little uncomfortable, and that is I'd like you to be honest with yourself and think of a time when you know you did something wrong. Just an honest time when you know you did something wrong. Maybe it was something big. Maybe what came to mind for you is some major blow up. Maybe you got busted for or you know, in some sense got caught, or maybe no one knew even, and you're still aware of it. Maybe it was something small. Maybe it was on the way to church today. Maybe it was a harsh word or something, whether it's big or small or anywhere in between. I want you to be honest with yourself and just try to think of a time you've done something wrong. You knew you did something wrong. And let me ask you two questions about it. First, what, if you could think about what were your emotions, what did you feel when you did something wrong? Maybe embarrassment, maybe anger, if somebody else was pointing it out to you, maybe a desire just to to hide, maybe shame, maybe guilt. Now, let me ask another question then, and that is what did you do with those emotions? And, And also, what did you do in that moment when you became aware that you knew you did something wrong? Did you run away? Did you blame shift? Did you hide? Did you decide to work harder? What did you do? Again, maybe you got angry at someone who pointed it out to you. The reason I ask this is because this is really, really important to pay attention to because we all do a lot of wrong things. All the time, big things and small things. And how we respond in those moments shapes our very person and our destiny. I mean, what is our life really? Who are we really, if not a series of tiny choices that become habits, that become postures, that become our destiny? You see, every moment, to be a living creature means every moment you are changing. We are becoming something. We're becoming towards life or we're becoming towards death at every moment. And those choices of what we make, especially in those crucial moments when we come to see ourselves clearly and what we do with that, shape who we become very much. I was thinking about this this week and was reminded of the great uh, novel by Victor Hugo, Les Mis, that many of us seen in a musical form, which is really among other great things going on in there, a picture of the development of two different people And as they become one, Jean Valjean, who's this criminal, he's been in prison 19 years, he finally gets out, he breaks parole, he's going down a bad path again when he steals from this bishop who then shows him incredible mercy and forgives him and really sets him up for life, and he repents. He lives a life dedicated to God and towards helping others and doing good, including, as you probably know, if you know the story, his adopted daughter, Cosette. Then the other main character... Jauvert, who has opposed to him and is a lawman and seeks the whole story to find him and capture him, whose only value is justice and no sense of mercy, when he comes to see himself clearly, in the moment that Jean Valjean shows him mercy, he can't handle it and ends his own life. This is such a powerful story of the development and the choices, large and small, that happen as we see ourselves clearly and what we do with them. I want you to keep that in mind as we turn to our text from 2 Corinthians today. If you've been here a while, you know we've been preaching through this powerful letter that we call 2 Corinthians. If not, we're, if you're first day here, we're glad you're here. And what's happening in chapter 7 is that Paul picks back up on the story. That he was telling back in chapters one and two. He had kind of a discursus for a little while uh, in chapters three, four, five, and six, and now he's coming back and picks up the story here of what he had started to tell in chapters one and two. And if you know anything about this, as I say, Paul, Titus, and the Corinthian mess, the relationship of Paul and his disciple Titus to this church, this young, zealous church in the Greek city of Corinth, it was a mess. It was full of conflict It was full of disagreements. It was full of misunderstandings and sinning against, that is, on the part of the Corinthian church towards the Apostle Paul. So let's pick it up here again in chapter 7, verses 5. We'll put it on the screen, but if you have a Bible, you can look along with me or in the bulletin as well. Paul says, For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest. We were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, so persecutions and fears within, anxiety he had. But God Who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, who is one of Paul's disciples, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. You see, if you can recall, and I talked about this in some previous weeks, Paul had a a very deep relationship with this young church in Corinth. He had lived there among them for some time. Then he had moved away to do missions and, and ministry in other places, and he started to hear these reports from various people in the church and some of his own disciples that there were a bunch of messes in the church. There was a lot of sexual immorality, people suing each other. There was just a lot of conflict. There was some overzealousness with some of the spiritual gifts, all these kind of things. So he wrote them a bunch of letters, at least four that we know of, We only have two of those, and two of those letters we call First and Second Corinthians. And what had happened in this particular situation is, in the midst of him being away and writing these letters with them, some people from within the church or from out the church came in and started to say, you know what? The Apostle Paul's not really that good of a guy. We don't believe his opinion. He was a little too harsh with you guys. You don't have to worry about this. And they started to turn against him. And so Paul went there to try to kind of restore the relationship, and the result was, he got completely rejected and humiliated by these people that he had given his life to. So he left in humiliation, and he wrote a letter to them that we don't have anymore that we call the severe letter, in which he, not for his sake of his own reputation, but because out of love for them and desire for them to stay connected with the true gospel and stay connected to God and stay connected to him, he wrote them a pretty strong letter, challenging them, pointing out their mistakes, pointing out their faults, pointing out the false accusations that have been made against him, And he sent it, as you did in those days, usually you'd send a letter by a friend of yours who would take it. He sent it with Titus to them, and then he had to wait. He had to wait to hear how would they respond. Think about that. You text somebody a little harsh, and you see those three dots, that's all we can handle, right? Think about sending a letter by ship and by foot and then having to wait, especially a a hard letter where you had to say to someone you loved, you had to say something kind of hard and he's waiting. And all the while he's being persecuted and the other ministry he's doing, and he's got full of anxiety, and finally, Titus arrives back. And what, the, what those verses I just read, and if the, the other verses that are at the bottom of this text that Lindsay didn't read for us, uh, was just because it was getting a little too long, but they're in the bulletin there for you as well. It's all about joy. It's about the joy of Titus returning, and giving the report the relief the joy that the Corinthians actually listened to what he said and said you know you're right you're right we were wrong in this and we do understand the gospel and we want to be in relationship with you Paul and we're going to you know correct those who had been wrong amongst us and so this is this is a a moment of joy and the beginning and the end of our text really focuses on that but the real meat i think is found right in the middle. And I think this is what God really has to say to us today. Let me pick it up here again in chapter 7, verses 9 to 11. I'll pick it up in verse 8. He says, "'So even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance.'" For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. And here's the key verse, verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So you see what Paul is saying is he's like a good father here or a good mother. Paul is saying he took no pleasure in actually writing those hard words. He didn't do pleasure in causing them pain. That would be wrong if we took pleasure in someone else's pain. He felt bad that they had had this, this experience of sorrow and regret, but he realizes that this was a necessary pain for their good. Be like if you've had children Taking your six-year-old to go get shots. Oh, that's the worst, isn't it? They know what they've done it enough times they know what's what's coming. Or maybe you have a teenage son who's thrown his shoulder out of place and you have to be there while the coach or the med medic puts it back into place. It's pain, but you know it's necessary for the good and for the healing to come. In the midst of this, Paul points out then that there are really Two different kinds of sorrow that we can experience. He calls one of them in verse 10 again, worldly sorrow, and the other one, godly sorrow. And again, verse 10 is the key. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. You see, in the sorrows that we experience in our lives, there's only one kind that God ever intends for us, because God is all good. As the book of James reminds us, God is light. There is no shifting shadow. You don't have to wonder if God's mad at you. If you're in Christ, you don't have to wonder if God's going to be kind of grouchy today, like a Greek God or something and throw a lightning bolt. That's not how the God of the Bible is. He is always good. Every good gift comes from him. But there is one kind of sorrow that you can say is actually from God. That's what he calls godly sorrow or sorrow from God. And that it's the kind of sorrow that leads us to see ourselves clearly and see our brokenness and see our sinfulness that leads us back to God. And you notice that he points out that these two different kinds of sorrow have two very different outcomes. One again leads to life and restoration and joy and fullness and thriving, and the other leads to death and destruction and loss. And I think when we think about those two different kinds of sorrow, godly versus worldly, I think we can sum them up with two words that are in contrast here. And one is regret versus repentance. Regret versus repentance. You see, all sorrow, especially sorrow when we see we've done something wrong, whether you're just in your conscience or whether you were caught in it, all all worldly sorrow has regret in it. We feel bad when we've done something wrong. Maybe we try to escape it quickly, but we know it. God has given us a conscience. We wish it wouldn't have happened. Maybe we feel a little embarrassed if we're honest as well. We may be overwhelmed by this dark sense, but regret is real. Regret is powerful. Regret is something we feel when we've done wrong. But according to the Bible and what Paul's saying here, that regret that you feel when you've done something wrong is not the same thing as actual repentance. Repentance is something more than just feeling bad for having done wrong. If you look at verse 11 again, he gives a, a sevenfold description. It's not comprehensive. This is not all that we would want to say that repentance is, but it's a picture of what real repentance on the part of the Corinthians looked like when they received that letter and didn't just feel bad, but actually turned. Look at verse 11 again. It says, what earnestness, that they they had rejected indifference. They rejected blame shifting. They rejected apathy and saying, hey, it's not my fault. And they're earnest now. To see what's to own it and to see what's uh, right being done. Eagerness to clear yourselves, not in the self-justifying sense, but that means to 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 do what is right and, and to get on the right side of this thing. Indignation, I think, probably especially in this case, against the one who had done wrong, and maybe even at themselves as well for their foolishness. Alarm, they're aware of the foolishness of what they had done. Longing, says in verse eleven, Paul long they long to be in a relation with Paul again. Concern to do the right thing. Readiness to see justice done. These are some of the marks of what not just regret looks like, not that you just feel bad that you did something wrong, but you actually repent. So what is repentance? Well, Paul's not just making this up in these verses. Repentance is this huge idea in the Bible. It's one of the most important ideas. What is repentance? Well, repentance, if you can think about it from some of the places it appears, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets regularly call people to repent. That is to return to God, to stop worshiping idols, to stop trusting in, other, in idols or in other gods and to instead tr- return to the true God. Or when you turn to the New Testament, it is the message of Jesus. Matthew chapter three, first book of the New Testament, John the Baptist preaches, repent, same word, because the kingdom of God is coming from heaven to earth. Matthew chapter four, Jesus, when he stands up to begin his ministry, he says the exact same thing, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is a call to turn, to return. Now, it's a big word that we use a lot, but I, I do wonder if we don't always understand what it means, because I know in times past, when I've thought about the word repentance, there's a couple of associations that come to mind for me. One is When we were in college we spent our spring breaks with uh, campus crusade for christ it was called back in those days sharing our faith on daytona beach uh during the spring break time and i so remember that there was always this guy this haggard looking guy who would walk down the beach carrying this big cross and basically yelling at people immodest you're a sinner you're going to hell And the message was repent. And so those early associations in my mind was that must be what repent means, is kind of condemning people. And I also think of maybe like a sandwich board person, you know, maybe standing on the streets of New York or saying, the end is near or something, repent. Or maybe a New Yorker cartoon, you can imagine, you know, a sandwich board person, repent. And while it is true that there's a call to repentance, that's not what repentance means. Repentance is not a message of condemnation. Repentance is an invitation to turn, an invitation to adopt a new way of understanding yourself and a new way of understanding God. Repentance is an invitation to turn from inhabiting the world in one way with its habits and its love and its actions and its beliefs to a different way. Repentance is turning from self, which when you have regret, you're still really just, that can just be focused on yourself and actually turning to God. Not just in heart, but in actions, as we saw with the Corinthians. They want to do what is right, and they seek to make things right. This is what repentance is. And when you look throughout the Bible and human history, we see so many great examples of repentance. You can think again of the people of Israel who often needed to be called back to, to put away their idols and seek God again. Or you think of the prodigal son, such a beautiful picture of repentance, a a man who comes to himself when he realizes he's he's done wrong and returns to his father. You think of Zacchaeus, the wee little man, right? I guess not that small, but the the wee little man who, from the the book of Luke, is this notorious, basically runs a tax cartel, and he's robbing his own people, his own Jewish people, and he sees Jesus, his eyes are opened, and he repents which means he doesn't just feel bad about the stuff he did, he actually changes his way of life. He makes recompense and he starts following Jesus. So we can think of Paul himself. The Apostle Paul, the same one who wrote this letter, knew what it meant to repent because he was on the way to help kill, arrest and kill Christians for persecuting, uh, for, because they believed they were a cult that wasn't true Judaism, And God literally knocked him off a donkey, closed his eyes with blindness so that he might have them opened again and see. He repented of one way of seeing the whole world and one way of living in the world to another. And we can skip forward and think of John Newton who uses Paul's experience to write this famous hymn, Amazing Grace. He goes from being a slave trader to being an abolitionist, and most importantly, a Christian who says, I once was blind, and now I see. That is repentance, and I hope it's true for you as well. That there was a time where you saw yourself clearly, and you saw God clearly, and you turned. You turned from one way of being in the world to another. You see, the Bible, though, what's very important to understand is the Bible doesn't just give us examples of repentance, it often gives us pairs of characters that show us the difference between what Paul's talking about here, between just regret versus true repentance. In fact, based on some wordplay and other things, I think when Paul wrote verse 10, I think he was thinking about one set of characters in particular who modeled this difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow, and that is Peter. And Judas. Peter and Judas were both close, intimate friends of Jesus, both followers, both experienced and saw Jesus' miracles walking on water and feeding multitudes and healing people and casting out demons, preached the gospel together, arm in arm often, and they both completely failed and betrayed Jesus at the end of his life. They both failed him and they both felt incredible regret. I remember many years ago, I don't know if they still do this, but Southeast Christian here in town used to have these big Easter pageants. And I remember many, 15 years ago or so, going to one of them was very powerful, artistically done. The whole stage was dark at this moment in the the passion story. And you had Peter on one side of the stage and Judas on the other with just a spotlight on each of them. And they're singing a duet and they're singing the exact same words, what have I done? I've always thought that was a great picture of these two men who's the way the gospels tell the story, are clearly put in parallel. They're both close friends of Jesus. They both completely fail him at the end, yet their destinies are entirely different. Peter ends up becoming the leader of the church, this amazing preacher, the one who preached at Pentecost, and Judas goes to destruction at his own hand. What is the difference between these two men who experienced incredible regret for the wrong they had done. What's the difference? They both had sorrow, but in the case of Peter, he repented. He saw himself and instead of just being self-consumed with regret and worldly sorrow, he turned to God, confessed his sin, and acknowledged that this was true of him and found grace. That's the difference. It wasn't the sorrow, it wasn't the action of, the, of doing wrong, it was the repentance, it was the turning. It wasn't a bunch of works that Peter did to earn his favor back, it was the turn. It was the turn toward God and finding his forgiveness. When I also think of Peter and Judas, I can't help but think also of the same kind of pairing of characters from the Old Testament, and that is the, the first and second kings of Israel, King Saul and then King David. Again, both great warriors, both handsome, both great leaders, both um, used by God, called by God, anointed by God, and both men who failed miserably and deeply. Each of them sinned as leaders and sinned as persons personally. And between the two of them, you've probably heard me say here before, I think David's sins were far worse in terms of the damage of them, committing adultery, forced adultery honestly, with another man's wife and then having her husband killed. Yet their destinies are forever different. Saul becomes a disgraced king and David becomes the greatest king of Israel in whom Jesus is the line, the son of David. What's the difference between these two men who had incredible regret over what they did? The difference is repentance. Their sorrow was not just turned inward but their sorrow was turned upward to God. And David, you can read Psalm 51 is one of the places he talks about this, but I wanted to put before you a few of the words he says from Psalm 32 when he describes what he experienced in repentance. He says, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and whose spirit is no deceit. And here's what he described before he repented. You've known this feeling too. When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And then friends, here's the moment. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity, didn't self-justify, didn't blame shift. And I said, simply, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Friends, that's beautiful. That is the picture of the difference between just worldly sorrow and the kind of godly sorrow that leads to life. I appreciate the way one author makes the difference, makes the observation of the difference between our tendency to maybe just sometimes admit sins versus really confess them often we often just admit a problem something we know we've wrong we've done wrong about we know it's not right but that's not quite the same thing as actually confessing it when we admit sin we can actually kind of remove our real and deep and personal connection to it and we have often maybe just ask others to understand it. But when we confess our sin, we actually own it. Rosario Butterfield writes, Christians who indulge the habit of admitting rather than confessing sin over time tend not to see their sin as sin at all. It just seems like life. At first, they may hate the sin. They may truly wish to be free from it. She goes on to talk about how some of us who are strong willed may even make behavioral modifications. But that admitting sin and kind of keeping it far from us is not really the same thing as confessing. Confessing sin is when you take it to the cross of Jesus in repentance. You own it, you don't, you don't try to defend yourself, you don't self justify, you don't give a half apology but you lay your honest brokenness before God in Christ and find that he gladly forgives you. That's godly sorrow leading to repentance, leading to life. And so what do we do with this? That's what Paul's really getting at and the Corinthians are modeling for us. What do you and I do? Well, repentance is not just this kind of big one-time act. It can be that. There can be an initial act of repentance, and, and there might be something big in your life. Maybe you can think of a some major sin you did, and you had to repent of it. Repentance isn't, though, just this big act. Repentance is really a lifestyle. Repentance is a posture of heart. I think of Jesus' first and second Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount where he talks about the the true happiness or the true flourishing, the true blessedness is having a poverty of spirit and mourning. That's speaking about the kind of people who live in an awareness of, of repentance, of their need to repent. But what I want to make sure you understand is that, again, repentance is not just this sort of thing. You just have to think, well, when I do something really big, I have to repent of it." But repentance is also the way that we deal with what happens to all of us, even if you're a Christian. And that is, our hearts drift. Our hearts drift. Our hearts wander. And repentance is the tool, repentance is the gift to address when we have those moments where we become aware, it's how we deal with this drift and this wandering in our hearts. Not just for the big moments, it's for the daily life of poverty of spirit. And I think for the Christian, if you're a Christian here today, I think the best way to think about this kind of life of continual repentance is to think about it, in terms of a healthy marriage. I know some people here aren't married, some people are, but either way, I hope you can understand this illustration, that our life of relationship of repentance with God is like a healthy marriage, and and here's what I mean by that. Just like in a marriage, there's a point where the relationship goes from just mutual interest to an actual covenantal commitment to a legally binding, vow-driven, new kind of relationship. And we call that a covenant because it creates a new bonded relationship. And that marriage covenant is the exact illustration and the same idea of covenant is how God describes his relationship with his people through Christ. It's a covenant. Now, after this initial, initial covenant is made, in a healthy marriage then, You don't live in constant fear that one little act or a bunch of little acts or even some big act is necessarily going to break the relationship. That would be a very unhealthy relationship to to act like at any moment everything's precarious. That's the point of the covenant. You have made a commitment to each other that means that there are going to be sins large and small but there's something around it and surrounding it and supporting it and sustaining it that is bigger than just your actions that's what a covenant is that's how a marriage works and so you don't constantly beat yourself up about it but about your sins and mistakes but at the same time you're aware that as in a marriage so too in our relationship with God, we all drift. We all start to neglect. We all start to ignore. We all start to forget and get consumed with other things. And so too in our relationship with God and repentance is the tool, is the gift, is the invitation from God to see yourself clearly again within the covenant. We don't live in fear. If you're in Christ, you don't live in fear of God in that sense, that at any time he's just gonna turn against you. You recognize you're in a relationship, but you have these moments where you wake up and realize, wow, my checkbook reveals that I really care about things of the world more than God. Or you have this moment where you realize I am bitter in my heart towards someone and not loving them and not forgiving them. You have this moment where you realize I am giving myself to an addiction that is gonna destroy me. Maybe it's not to the stage of this big event that everybody knows about. That's not most of our life is lived life. Most of our life are these small moments of awareness. And so, how do you go from this sort of just having regret to this actual godly sorrow? this is the work of the Holy Spirit, that you pay attention. You listen to the Spirit. You keep in step with the Spirit. You listen to your conscience when you feel convicted, and you take it to the Lord. Now, there is such a thing as false guilt, and there is such a thing as an oversensitive conscience. You need to be aware of that. Just like in a marriage, if you don't understand the covenant, then if you tried to live in a marriage where at every moment, is that okay that I said that? Is that okay? Are you going to be mad now? That's not a healthy marriage, right? That does, that's not a good relationship. If you're constantly living in fear, that's not how you relate to God either. You don't live in this constant Oh, no, did I do enough? Oh, no, what if I'm... That morbid introspection is death. That's not life. And unfortunately, there are traditions of Christianity that encourage that. There are whole traditions of Christianity that basically say, you are horrible, you're a worm, you constantly need to be down on yourself. That's not what we're doing here, because that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that, yes, we're broken and sinful and in need of redemption from beginning to end, but we are beautifully and wonderfully and fearfully made in God's image, filled with his spirit, made in his image, and we're in a covenantal relationship, but there's no condemnation. Amen? There is no condemnation. Therefore, you don't live in this constant, morbid introspection. You don't live that way. That's not where repentance is. You live in this posture of a a wife to a husband or a husband to a wife or a child to a parent in a good, perfect relationship where you know you are loved and you don't want to drift. And so you use the tool of honesty and humility. You don't just feel bad about what you've done, but you actually return God and you return to his ways. Maybe for you this week, you kids and teenagers, maybe there's something you need to confess and repent with your parents. Something that they don't know about that you need to tell them. I'm not trying to call it my own kids at this moment, don't worry. (laughs) If you're married, maybe this week, you can already be aware this morning of of some bitterness, some hardness of heart, some sin. That you need to confess. You need to repent. As I, many of you know, you know we I've been with my wife these last four weeks, and the last ten days at home have been particularly difficult. And um, even though I'm there's a lot of grace, I'm sure, I'm sure you all, and I have some grace for myself in the difficulty of this. A few days ago, I just realized some, some pretty childishness on my part. And one of the great occupational hazards of being a teacher and preacher of the Bible is that you actually have to try to do it yourself occasionally. And uh, in preparing for the sermon a few days ago, early in the morning, I realized, I just had a check in my spirit that I had been really showing up with a lot of childishness on a certain issue with my wife. And so I just got on my knees and confessed it. And then I went into the room where she was in bed and got on my knees and confessed to her as well. Friends, that's where life is. There's no reason to hold on. There's no reason to self-justify and defend and explain. Life is found in the humble way of just repentance, right? Life is found in the humble way of repentance. And and parents, maybe there's something you need to confess to your kids. Maybe you need to humble yourselves before them this week and and confess to them and repent. Maybe again, there's someone that you in this room feel really hard-hearted toward because they've really wronged you maybe. Not saying it's a quick fix, but I invite you to repentance to living in the way of love, the way of forgiveness, not the way of self-justification and pride. And all of this friends is the inward journey that God is inviting us to. That this week you're gonna experience sorrow. Sorrow from without, but also especially sorrow from the things you've done that are wrong. Make that a godly sorrow, not a worldly sorrow. Don't just feel bad about it. Use that as an invitation to turn to God. And the only reason you wouldn't do that is if you thought of God that he will not accept you. That's the only reason. If you can see clearly how the God of the Bible reveals himself to us, that when we confess, when we turn to him, there is no sin too big that he will not forgive. When you see God clearly, there is no reason to hold back. There's absolutely no reason not to be completely honest and to find the way of life through repentance. So don't let your worldly sorrow just be that this week. Turn it into godly sorrow, by turning to the God who loves you. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.